0: I pray that all members consider the information I and my fellow whistleblowers present. You may think I'm a political partisan. You may think I'm a grifter. You may think I'm a conspiracy theorist. It does not matter. Simply put, this committee should avoid the temptation to impugn the character and the motivations of the messengers seated before you.
1: Oh, that was the voice of Steve Friend. He's our guest today for day two. And that was his voice testifying in front of Jim Jordan and the, the the House Judiciary Committee in May. He was one of three FBI whistleblowers who paid a terrible price, really, for their honesty, for their bravery, and their courage. And you're going to want to hear the rest of his story, where he's landed, what's happened to him uh, when we talk to him next. This is July, and we are still celebrating the birth of our nation. We should be, should be. I still see, you know, like red, white, and blue around, and banners left, and... Uh, We shouldn't be so eager to take those down. We need to regain and reestablish that line in the sand. Instead of being afraid of our love of our country, we should be displaying it. Uh, So with that, we think of freedom, and we think of the right to life and liberty. And that makes us think of the fact that there is a whole group of Americans who've not been born yet who don't have that right anymore. Uh, So many hundreds of thousands killed every year, because their moms decide that they just can't manage. It's too hard. It's too difficult. They cannot face it. And abortionists are more than willing to in their lives. And people's consciences are getting more and more hard, I think, especially young women, about the value of life. And that is where pre-born comes in. They bring in ultrasound, which is a beautiful, beautiful picture of the unborn baby, which sometimes shows the, the gender, the uh, identity, Little hands, little you know sucking of their thumb. I remember seeing that myself in a a lesser form of ultrasound when I was pregnant. It's very moving it's It's an incredible moment when you see your baby. And most women, when they see that, cannot bring themselves to terminate the life. So if you'd like to help preborn provide these ultrasounds to help moms make a good decision not only for the baby but for them also, you can go to preborn dot com slash sandy that's preborn dot com slash sandy and make your most generous donation. And also, you know that if you want to listen to the show in a way that's uh, pretty seamless, go to sandyrios.com. sandyrios.com. You can share with your families and f- family and friends uh, that that's a, an easy thing to remember and an easy way to find the podcast at sandyrios.com. Also, you can call us at 662-821-2040 662 821-2040, or you can write us at sandy at AFR.net. That's sandy at net. Okay, so sit back and relax. Everybody loves a good story, and this is a good story. Sandy Rios on Sandy Rios 24-7. From American Family Radio, Sandy Rios. We are not called to be nice. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in
0: D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. I
1: think the most important thing we need to demonstrate to our children is genuineness. That we actually believe what we say we believe. A
2: longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us.
1: Seek justice. Not social justice, but God's justice, what's right and what's wrong. Sending Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. We've got to say, this is the line. Life is sacred. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up. Speak up. Say something. Do something.
0: We've talked to over two dozen whistleblowers. People have come to us. We've interviewed several of those, and today three of them three of those brave whistleblowers, and a lawyer who represents them will tell us their story. They will tell us what happened, what they saw, and then what happened to them because they were courageous enough to report it to Congress. I'm
2: sad, I'm disappointed, and I'm angry that I have to be here to testify about the weaponization of the FBI and DOJ. Weaponization against not only its own employees, but against those institutions and individuals that are supposed to protect the American people. I am here today because even though I am wrongfully suspended from the FBI, I remain duty-bound to the American people to play my small role in rectifying these issues. Despite my history of unblemished service to the United States, the FBI suspended my security clearance, accusing me of actually being disloyal to my country. This outrageous and insulting accusation is based on unsubstantiated accusations that I hold conspiratorial views regarding the events of January 6, 2021, and that I allegedly sympathize
0: with criminal conduct. I pray that all members consider the information I and my fellow whistleblowers present. You may think I'm a political partisan. You may think I'm a grifter. You may think I'm a conspiracy theorist. It does not matter. Simply put, this committee should avoid t- the temptation to impugn the character and the motivations of the messengers seated before you.
1: Sandy Rios with you on Sandy Rios 24-7. That just happened in May, May, just recently in May. That was a a hearing before Jim Jordan and the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, And it was three FBI whistleblowers uh, talking about what they had seen and how bad it was. You know, we often talk about history. I love history. We talk about the heroes of history, Patrick Henry and uh, some of the others that paid such a great price uh, for you know, signing away their, their lives and their fortunes. Well, uh, these three agents are, the, are some of the heroes of our time uh, because they gave up everything uh, to let people know how rotten things were in the law enforcement agency that they trusted. And, of course, the, same, the, the thing of it is, I'm guessing they each loved that agency. Uh, they loved and dedicated themselves to serving it Uh, But when it crossed the line of not following the Constitution and going after America's people, it was too much for them. They are the heroes of our time. The last voice you heard was the voice of Steve Friend. Uh, He uh, worked, by the way, as a patrolman and narcotics agent in Savannah, Georgia, before he went into the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He investigated violent crimes and major offenses occurring on Indian reservations in northeast Nebraska, and he was a member of the FBI Omaha SWAT team. He then worked in investigating child exploitation and human trafficking before being released to investigate domestic terrorism. You guessed it. And he's written a book now called True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. And um, it's, uh, it's out right now. You can get it. So it's True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. And Steve Rend joins us today to talk about his story. Steve, thanks for joining us.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me. All
1: right, so Steve, uh, one has to ask. You know, I have to ask you. You're, you where did you grow up in uh, uh, Georgia, or where was where was your home?
0: I did. Uh, I moved uh, early. I was about uh, nine years old. My family moved to Savannah. So I was I was born uh, in New Jersey, but uh, Savannah is my home. That's where I spent the majority of my childhood and upbringing.
1: Okay, so I don't think you know we. Uh, our homes are not known for teaching kids to go in law enforcement. Now they are law enforcement families. Was yours one of those? Like several generations of law enforcement?
0: No, no, I was actually the white collar family. Uh, my dad was CPA. My older sister is an attorney. My younger sister is a pharmacist, and my younger brother is a, uh, an architect. So I was I was supposed to be a follow the family business and be the
1: accountant. Oh, you, well, so we're, so they were pretty surprised, and I bet they were pr- very proud of you. But what made you? What? 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 What made you want to be an FBI agent or a policeman?
0: Well, uh, you know, I, I I looked into being an accountant, uh, went to school for that, uh, and then uh, one tax season was enough for me to know that I needed to do something different. It just was not a good fit, <laughs> and uh, I, I had two grandfathers uh, both uh, served in the, in the United States Army. I had always uh, been interested in doing military service. Uh, I was in ROTC when I was in high school. But unfortunately for me, uh, I am asthmatic and and take medication to this day every day, Uh, and I was not going to be able to pass uh, a physical. So I started to look into other sort of civic service that I could do, and then the idea of law enforcement uh, started to percolate in my mind, Um, and it was an opportunity to serve my community impacted directly and sort of deploy every day, but then come home at night, Uh, and it was paramilitary in in its structure, and uh, and I've always been sort of a uh, a straight-laced guy, uh, a a rulemeister, I guess, and and it it just struck me as being a pretty good fit.
1: And so was it, when you were a policeman doing narcotics, was it a good fit? Because you're kind of dealing in a very messy world for a guy who likes order. You
0: are, but by the same token, I, I always uh, I was taught very early on that uh, there's this misconception in law enforcement that it's militant. Uh, it's closer to sales than it is actually military, and and uh, <laughs> you just have to be selling the worst product in the world. You're selling jail, and uh, you have to communicate with people, which uh, I, I feel like I have a good uh, aptitude for, and I uh, have an inquisitive mind. So when it came to investigations, it was something that uh, sort of came naturally to me, uh, and uh, and I always as a As a young man who was who grew up making good grades and uh, small <laughs> i was i was I was bullied when I was in school and then it just developed in my mind that i didn't want anybody to have to uh, to face that and if I could put myself in front of that for anybody else that seemed to be a, a worthy cause to take up
1: <laughs> and also you worked on indian reservations i, I think um, in north. Uh, east nebraska i just want to say that you know that's kind of a mystery to a lot of americans and i know something about it but i'm not well informed but they have their own governance Uh, they have their own system um it's it's very interesting and complex and i just will interject i talked recently oh actually this was to a pastor who was had been working on an indian reservation i can't remember where this was and he said he was—he just saw the despair, especially among young people, the suicides, uh, the drugs, all of that. Um, I don't know if that was any intersected anything that you did there, but what, what, how would you describe what you did there and what you saw?
0: Yeah, it's uh, what you're describing is, I think, across the board. Um, it's a, one of the most underserved areas in our country because of the jurisdictional issues. It's technically a special jurisdiction. Uh, they have their own government. It's a uh, quasi-sovereign uh, soil, uh, sovereign country. But uh, because of retrocession, they've come back into the fold of the United States uh, government. So they have their own legal system, their own uh, tribal police department. But uh, because of these uh, old, old-timey laws, they cannot enforce... Uh, any sort of uh, laws against non-Native Americans. So if a, a non-Native were to go on a reservation and commit a crime, they couldn't actually arrest an individual. Oh. And, and they're only able to enforce misdemeanors for regardless of the crime. So in, in my experience on one reservation, I saw an individual go uh, to jail for 40 days having been convicted of committing a rape. And oh. uh, there's a tremendous amount of corruption within the tribal governments. There's a uh, Huge uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, gambling abuse, and it is an ex- exhibit A of why you uh, teach a man to fish and don't give a man to fish. And the, the despair that you describe is uh, is 100 accurate. And people just get trapped. They they get enough subsistence uh, from the tribal or the uh, the U.S. government uh, welfare to uh, keep them barely uh, treading water, and uh, they are fearful to leave that because uh, once you get a step out into the the open and and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, it's 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 a hard hard task especially when you've your entire life has been in this small village so i worked on on violent crimes out there which uh, which was a not great opportunity because uh, you have the ability to impact these small communities where the rapist doesn't go to jail for 40 days they they mm-hmm. go to jail for decades mm-hmm. and, uh, and and that was what i really took pride in and it was also a great opportunity to work with the local tribal police which to me was always the the primary um, the prime directive of, of the FBI work, I think you should work as hard as you can to get to yes for uh, any ask from a local police department and especially a tribal police department because they just don't have the resources and the training and the manpower to really do the job um, a- adequately. And mm-hmm. uh, I had a chance out there over seven years to investigate about 200 cases, arrested about 150 criminals and, um, and it was a, great experience that uh, I was content to just be out there and working. uh, If it hadn't been for happy wife, happy life, I probably would still be in uh, in, in Iowa.
1: (laughs) We've heard that before. Uh, Bruce and I have talked about that. He's had other agent friends who have stories about that, but we won't take the time, but uh, some unhappy wives uh, in some of these assignments that you guys get in remote parts of the world. Uh, you know, well, I just want to interject something. What you described uh, in the reservation is uh, I, I saw that in Russia in 1991. I was there, and it was right before the Soviet Union broke up. And what I, uh, what I saw there was pretty much what you described on a reservation. People trapped, uh, con- uh, addicted to alcohol, drunk, were drunk in the parks, uh, discouraged uh, because they, they had enough just to live. They had places to, it was communism after all. Everybody's, you know, equal, equally poor, equally wretched, uh, but trapped, trapped. And it has nothing really to do with race from my perspective. I just want to make that point. Um, all right, so you then went to work in uh, uh, child exploitation and human trafficking. And, and because of the movie that's just come out, Sound of Freedom, I think people may be more in touch with that. Uh, I have a bit of history with that. But I, my question to you is uh, how did that, your father of two, how did uh, viewing some of the things and seeing some of the things uh, that you had to see affect you personally?
0: You know, I, I it's working on child pornography and actually Indian reservations are two of the violations in the FBI. You can beg out of because of the nature of the uh, of the work. It's either it's very voluminous and very violent, and, and very, the images that you see in child pornography are, are, can impact you. Um, I I don't know why but I just was always able to uh, compartmentalize that and say that's evidence, and it's, it's a necessary for me to view this so that I can put the bad guy behind bars, and then I'm willing to do that. And, uh, and when I left work, I could come home and be a father and, 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 and was able to sort of put those images aside. And, uh, and I'm, I don't know why, why my default setting is that way, um, but I also felt that that was I was lucky to be able to do that because I I'd be able to to pursue those those cases you uh, know in, in, for long term I intended to basically work that for the remainder of my career because there's so few people that are willing to to actually step up and do it.
1: Yes, absolutely, it's a gift, and that that's what you if you're able to do that, that's what probably you should be doing, if possible, because of the reasons you just said. All right, so it was out of that then that you got assigned to. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. It's just uh, dark humor to investigate this whole new tribe of uh, criminals known as domestic terrorists in our country, and of course we were led to believe that you know was all we were. Uh, there were so many KKK and uh, white supremacist groups and militias and all of that, and um, and then of course it morphed into people at school board meetings and certainly to people at the Capitol on January the sixth. Uh, had any of that happened uh, the January 6th before you got, um, had January 6th had taken place before you were reassigned uh, to domestic terrorists?
0: Yes. Yes, I got reassigned at the end of the fiscal year in uh, 2021. So it had been about nine months since January 6th. Um, oh. And uh, as a result of that, I was very, it, it, even on the day in question, um, I was, hadn't transferred yet. So I was on a reservation without cell or Internet. I did not know what had happened at the Capitol that day until I got home that night and I got a phone call from my dad.
1: Wow. So did you go into this then, um, would you say you went into this just reading what they were telling you and not really having knowledge of those events?
0: Yes. I mean, I'm always, um, I've always given maximum latitude to my coworkers that every time there'd be Yeah, if some sort of incident happened, you always see the news report of, well, the FBI knew about this individual. And I would always just kind of shake my head and say, look, you know, we get thousands of reports every single day. I'm not, I'm just grateful that, you know, my name hasn't been on any one of these reports that somebody has gone out and then committed a a mass shooting or an attack. And then I would be held accountable to it when, you know, it was nothing I could really have done. And I'm just uh, lucky to that point. So uh, I was taking everything on good faith that the guys there were. Doing the work and pursuing people that needed to be investigated, and um, um, my my motto that I uh, often cited is "paint the fence." And I, I envision the mission of the FBI as a giant fence that spans all of our all of our yards. And if you paint the section that's in your yard, the whole fence is going to get painted. So I was very focused on the Indian Country work and the child pornography work, and and then when I was voluntold to work on domestic terrorism, <laughs> I just took it in good faith that the need was there, and I was going to. I'm going to to go and attempt to do that to the best of my ability.
1: All right, so your first assignment, I don't know if it's your first, but you actually then were participating, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in arresting some people who were there on January the 6th uh, in that first wave of arrests. Is that right?
0: Well, the first opportunity that I was going to have to arrest anybody was actually the incident that I came forward about. It was not a situation where I... You know, after my conscience got to the best of me after having arrested several of them, the cases that were in my office had already been worked and uh, the interviews had been conducted and guys had already confessed to what their involvement in the Capitol was that day. And that was the problem that I had with the, the processes that the FBI is using to investigate these cases being outside rules for, for investigations. So we had these cases that were signed our office, but we weren't really in charge of them. We were taking directives from Washington, D.C. about how to carry out our own cases. And we would sit there and say, well, when is Washington, D.C. going to decide if they're going to charge our subject with a crime? And there would be these conference calls where they said, well, we haven't decided yet. We're going to go back through the code book and see if we can find anything else to charge if we want to charge them. And because the cases sat dormant for months, we would do unnecessary things to paper our file and make it look like it was... Um, being actively worked, and the, the best way to do that was surveillance. So on the way home from work, hey, today's your day. Drive by his house and uh, say you did surveillance. So there was actually no active investigation on it. So the the only uh, real activities that I did pertain to anything January 6th, I, I was sent to interview a gentleman um, based on an anonymous tip where the task force in D.C. did a workup. His phone uh, did not ping in the area. His facial recognition was negative, and there was an anonymous tip that he had assaulted police officers, and I was told I needed to go and interview him. And just being an experienced investigator, I knew that, that that is not an actionable item, because even if he confesses, there's no physical evidence, and he could just be crazy. But nevertheless, was told I had to, otherwise Washington, D.C. would continually pester me to go and interview this gentleman. And uh, I, I went and uh, knocked on his door, told him uh, I was with the FBI looking into January 6th, And asked him if he was at the Capitol, and he told me no because that was the day of his son's funeral, though he was uh, otherwise occupied. And um, that's really when I had a moment of this is the collateral damage that this dragnet is causing. The FBI is willing to make a man who was not involved that day now relive the worst day of his life because it wants to get one more domestic terrorism stat. Mm -hmm.
1: Let me interject just because of my own, because of my husband's, not, uh, because of my knowledge of the FBI, because I'm married to a former agent, that uh, because people might not understand that the FBI headquarters is in D.C. and they're the big, you know, the brain trust. And then there are uh, bureaus all over the country in every state, major city, and some, you know, I don't know how many, but agents are everywhere. And you guys, what you're trying to say is you guys handle your own cases in your own areas, and they, for the most part, let you do that. But with this one, the FBI in the, the D.C. headquarters operated this huge investigation. And that's a, that's a departure from these, the, the regular system, right?
0: Yes. Well, the, the first decision to open up a different case for every single person and then assign them to the field uh, where the person lives as opposed to where the, the alleged crime occurred those are actually allowable. They're very unusual and atypical and I think manipulative. But the, uh, official departure then is once that case is assigned to Steve Friend in Daytona Beach, Steve Friend is supposed to have all the, uh, the training and experience and to carry out that investigation the way he deems to be, uh, appropriate. However, uh, that was not going on. We, I was still taking directives from Washington D.C., which to me, why wouldn't Washington D.C. just open up its own case and then cut a lead to me to do any sort of activity need to be done? In uh, that way, they'd be in the good on the policy standpoint. They they wouldn't have departed from the rules. Why why were they doing this unnecessary departure? And just asking that question, um, I was told that that question was posed very early on after January sixth, and uh, and the high ups in the uh, in the FBI and the DOJ responded that it was to get buy in. That was why they were departing, and, and buy-in, to me, meant one of two things. Either you do not believe I'm going to do a good job on this case unless my name is on it, which is a pretty peculiar view of your workforce. Or secondly, and more likely, the buy-in was that now all the field offices were going to be able to meet their quotas for domestic terrorism cases because they've spread them around and given credit where it's due to the senior executives who could now collect their bonuses and there's going to be an added incentive now uh, to, uh, to, to keep the numbers high for the, the JTTS so they can justify their existences.
1: Mm. Steve, uh, my husband, Bruce, as, as who I've mentioned, is a retired FBI agent and a former prosecutor, and uh, he usually joins me at the end of the shows, but he's sitting with me listening to you talk, and I want to uh, bring him into the conversation to ask you a couple of questions. I, hey, Bruce, good morning, sweetheart. Good
2: morning. Good morning, Steve. <laughs> You know, I'm listening to you speak about how the administration of these cases from January 6th was was spread instead of being localized in uh, Washington, D.C., and then sending out leads to the different offices in the country to investigate this. Instead, they had you open up individual cases all across the country. And as you said, a lot of that... um, is for administrative reasons. Uh, it, it, it shows that each office has a quote-unquote domestic terrorist problem, a white supremacist problem in their jurisdiction. But uh, looking from a higher view, what I would see is it seems to be there is an FBI, a DOJ, a Biden administration goal by doing this to also attempt to label Trump supporters as domestic terrorists, and to justify this hounding of people from January 6th. Um, Am I overstating there?
0: No, I don't think you are. Um, I I remember very clearly uh, last September when President Biden spoke in front of Independence Hall. That was the red speech. Yep. And he cited uh, MAGA Republicans, and then he actually just said Republicans as being anti-government extremists and white supremacists. And you look now for the counterterrorism division's priorities uh, in the FBI, and uh, two of the top four priorities are anti-government extremism and and white supremacy. Uh, I think that that they've recharacterized domestic terrorism to be conveniently our political enemies.
1: We also have to say that there were. Uh, we just need to state for the record here in this discussion, uh, the FBI uh, took. Hunter Biden's laptop and tucked it away and participated in the lie that it was Russian disinformation. Uh, And even, I don't know if Christopher Hayes even acknowledged it to this day. And the second thing is we know now because of the Twitter files that the FBI has been communicating and actually uh, suggesting to uh, social media outlets, Twitter and Facebook and others, that they uh, censor. Uh, speech, uh, the wrong speech on January the sixth, the wrong speech on COVID, the wrong speech on transgenderism. Uh, so we know for a fact now, Steve, without even your whistleblowing, that the uh, and you're probably started the ball rolling here. That the FBI is corrupt in a lot in a deep ways. I, I guess I'm resisting. <laughs> you're the boss. You're the, the you're the expert. But I'm ex- I'm sort of resisting the notion that it's all about money and advancement. Something's just rotten at the core, I think. But do you not agree with that, or you really do think it's all about money and advancement?
0: No, I, I share your belief on that. And uh, there was a whistleblower that was a few weeks ago, it was sort of overshadowed by the uh, the IRS whistleblower. And this was an FBI uh, executive, 16 year veteran, 10 years at headquarters in Washington D.C., who came forward and said that uh, Paul Bates, the deputy director in February of 2021, so uh, a month after January 6th, uh, they were having these regular conference calls around the country with uh, all the senior leadership. And on that call voiced that any agent who voiced uh, concerns that the FBI was not being consistent with its treatment of January 6th investigations versus the civil unrest that we saw during the summer of love in 2020 with the Antifa and the Black Lives Matter uh, riots that went on. That anybody who felt that uh, there was an inconsistency there, the FBI was treating those events differently, needed to consider employment with uh, outside the FBI that they would essentially be cancelled, and anybody who uh, had a uh, subordinate to express that was directed to tell that individual to communicate with Paula Bate directly and he would set them straight and I think that Steve. that is consistent with the ideological capture that uh, that the Durham report exposed about how there's this, uh, this group think that's gone on, uh, and politically, within the, the senior levels, I think that, that's, uh, that that confirms my certainly my experience of having been canceled by the FBI and walked out of the building within one month of coming forward when I didn't expect anything else other than uh, at worst, maybe a reprimand and maybe be reassigned or something like that. Uh, I even proposed uh, that I would continue to work domestic terrorism, just maybe say I had a conflict of interest on these January 6th cases because I had concerns about our departures and felt that there was a, a due process risk if we went to trial. Uh, and if they they didn't share that sentiment, then maybe somebody else could, could handle them and I would just step away. Uh, but to the very fact that they contrived a way to remove me and uh, and placed me in an unpaid, indefinite, suspended status within 30 days. And and within every uh, meeting that I had, within minutes of expressing my concerns, every level of leadership told me that my career was going to be put at risk by even um, suggesting that the the FBI was doing something out of line.
2: Steve, can you detail for us what happened um, when you brought uh, these concerns forward? Who Who did you go to at first, and how did it go from there?
0: Yeah, so the uh, the arrests were going to happen on August 24th. It was a Wednesday, so the prior week on August 19th, on the Friday, I went to my boss and expressed my concerns about the risk to having these large scale arrests and SWAT operations for a guy who had uh, pledged to be cooperative with us. I thought that was a risk to his safety and ours. And then and then they also the the way that they're departing from the rules, I thought was uh, an issue and uh, my boss told oh, me that I really needed to take uh, some time to think about it because I was risking my entire career on this. Could and he told stop? me to take the could, could, weekend and, and think about it.
2: Could I stop you just for a second? Um, I'm assuming uh, one of the problems you had is a lot of these people were being charged with misdemeanors, not felonies. FBI, in my experience, we never used a SWAT team to arrest anyone for a misdemeanor. In fact, we rarely use the SWAT teams to arrest people unless it was a, a you know, a verifiable, highly dangerous, uh, armed and dangerous type situation. Um, and also, as a member of a SWAT team or or a arresting team, you read the uh, affidavit that was used to get the arrest warrant, and that there has to be probable cause that is sufficient to arrest a person. You can't just arrest a person because they don't think the right things. Were these two things, were they problems for you in this situation?
0: Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, I was told very early on, the FBI does not investigate misdemeanors. I mean, if, if you investigate a felony and it happens to be blood down misdemeanor, that's that's on the U.S. Attorney's Office. But uh, to just go into an investigation knowing that the misdemeanor was going to be the, the heaviest charge uh, was... was Laughable. Um, and uh, we were going to be using the large scale arrest operation for the misdemeanors. We we're going to be sending dozens of armed agencies houses uh, when if they're going to be charged. I mean, I, I thought the phone call would probably be the better option. And then the, uh, the felony subject uh, that SWAT was going to be sent. Uh, he uh, he had pledged that he would cooperate with us. If, if there was going to be charges, and um, and beyond that, because of the lapse in time, I mean, now you're talking about a year and a half, and I just put myself in issues because I can empathize with that. Just being a husband and a father, and having a Second Amendment right. Um, if you if I hear banging on my door at six o'clock in the morning, I, I can promise you it's going to be an armed encounter because I'm coming to the door with my firearm. That's that's my duty to protect my family, and I can just easily foresee the uh, the risk that, that that was posed, and I felt frankly the FBI has been lucky thus far that that nobody's been hurt as a result of these highly aggressive arrest tactics.
1: It really has been disgusting and I have interviewed so many people Steve over the course of this uh, 2 years plus uh, that have had that happen to them. It's just been so traumatic and such a perversion of a law enforcement agent who use agency who used to be uh, just our premier, our premier. Everyone was so proud of the FBI. It meant so much to be there. It's just sickening for us because it's close to our hearts, but I think it really makes Americans' hearts sick. I'm curious to know if you had, did you have, uh, you always have partners and you have people you went through the academy with and all of that, but did you have people that were your FBI partners or associates who expressed to you privately their concerns, or was everybody just lockstep?
0: Uh, I, most of the people, all the members of my Joint Terrorism Task Force were all thought that what we were doing was wrong. And we were all sort of crossing our fingers that, that uh, the task force in Washington was not going to charge these individuals uh, just because it just didn't seem to be appropriate. Um, and uh, they were just, uh, didn't share my, I guess, uh, willingness to come forward with my, their concerns. They were just content to put their head down and follow uh, orders. And, and that's that's not in keeping with uh, my morals or my my oath of office. You know, I, I was told when I went to the next level up the chain of command the following week after first coming forward, I was compelled to come and speak to two of the assistant special agents in charge, and uh, they kept telling me that uh, you know I, I had the right to express my worries, but ultimately I had to do what they told me to do, and I was being insubordinate and refusing to do my job. And I told them that uh, my job was to follow my oath of office. And my job also included training where I went to the Holocaust Memorial Museum and I went to the MLK Memorial and I was taught and it was hammered home to me that it is incumbent on you as a FBI special agent to throw the flag if you believe that the agency is off the rails and is potentially uh, hurting, hurting people or violating rights. And then because those that's the natural outgrowth of that. If, if law enforcement goes along and just follows orders, that's when genocide happens. Um, so i thought that i was uh in keeping with my oath of office which superseded this directive from my from my management that i had to participate in an arrest uh and and i think just it's it's anecdotal and small but uh one of the uh, one of the ASAC said well your your duty is to drive this individual to court uh you're not even involved on the on the entry team so you just have a small component. And I said, well, you know, any sort of participation in it to me is, is, is uh, morally questionable. Um, but you're now asking me to essentially put him on the train. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, that to me, I'm, I'm not going to be able to live with that. And uh, I'm, uh, I don't, I'm not willing to violate my oath because the arrest warrant doesn't say that Steve Friend shall arrest this individual. It says law enforcement officers, I'm comfortable with you reassigning me to something else. I'm not wanting to burn any bridges here or put anybody out. Um, I just want to go back to doing the the work that I I believe uh, what we're we're called to do. But uh, obviously they didn't share my belief with it because uh, they told me that I was not allowed to come to work the next day during the arrests and that I had to report myself AWOL. So uh, Mm. I didn't actually have the opportunity to refuse to come to work or refuse to participate. I actually did what I was told and I stayed home for the day. And that was Dr. Day's pay. Wow.
2: Steve, now, um, eventually you did become a whistleblower, um, I believe there are steps that the FBI asks us to go through as employees to become a whistleblower. Uh, There's also a way to become one through Congress. Um, What, what was your route to becoming a a whistleblower?
0: So uh, initially coming forward to my frontline supervisor is a protected whistleblower disclosure by, uh, by letter to law five USC 2303. Uh, So I did that to my frontline supervisor to the assistant special agent in charge, eventually the special agent in charge. And then after, uh, upon being suspended, um, my attorneys and I, we drafted a formal declaration, which I submitted to uh, House Judiciary, to Senate Judiciary, the uh, Inspector General, and to the Office of Special Counsel. And all of those are acceptable ways that you can submit your, your concerns. So, uh, But the, the actual um, first time that I came forward to my boss was uh, was a protected activity.
1: Well, it's always shocking when you, I, I've had this experience, actually, Steve, when you do something that you know is right, um, it's, uh, sometimes we're prepared for the blowback and sometimes we're not. I, how did your, you had two, how old were your boys, or how old are your boys, I should say, because this just happened.
0: Yeah, this just happened, I uh, mean, we're coming up on almost a year that, since it's happened, but at the time uh, they were uh, eight and, and five, so now it's nine <laughs> and five, it's going to be six, um, so both grade school. <laughs> Um, you know, if, if there's any sort of, uh, personal, uh, um, experience where it made it tough in you know, the decision, I mean, I've always said, like, look, the decision's not easy, but it's simple, and I would never have not done what I did. But, you know, being a, uh, father of two boys, and, and that's the, the best ego stroke you can have is coming home from work and having your kids meet you at the door and saying, Dad, how many guys did you put in jail today? And did did they cry when you locked them up? <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel bad for my wife sometimes. We have a very uh, testosterone-driven house where we're, we're just doing a uh, close-quarter battle.
1: <laughs> well, I, uh, Steve, I have to ask you something else, though, because um, you, I don't know. You've done so many interviews, and I haven't heard all of your interviews. Uh, but i I sense that you have, there's a spiritual component to this. Um, were you raised in the church? Do you have faith? Um, I'm just curious.
0: Yeah, um, you know, amazing as it is, you know, we were always, uh, as a family, I, I grew up in a we we didn't go to church, um, kind of a mixed faith household, but uh, nothing really serious. But it was just uh, always something that uh, I, I felt there was a, a gap there, and uh, amazingly enough, we found a church here uh, in my home in Daytona. That we uh, that we that we really love, and uh, actually the whole family was baptized in uh, Easter of 2021. So only a few months before this all happened, and uh, wow. I don't know if I'd have been able to r- ride this out, uh, without that uh, that knowledge in my head. I mean, I said, "Look, no matter where this goes, uh, read the last chapter, and it's, it's all going to work out."
1: <laughs> well, that's my—you took the words right out of my mouth. I say that I I deliver bad news almost every time we open the mic. Uh, because it is getting dreadful, but I was I was just myself this morning reading Habakkuk uh, though the, the the oh gosh, but I won't remember though the fig tree fail and the 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 the, the, uh, the fields go fallow uh, but yet I will trust you know basically I trust God even though everything fails, we still put our trust in him and that's kind of where I hang my hat because I know he's a wonderful God, he's got a plan for the universe. And in the in the middle of all of this, uh, we are playing a role uh, to be as faithful to truth, which is probably what led you to your faith in God, because he is the God of all truth. And he finds those people that believe in truth. And it does change us. Uh, and it is the thing that carries us through this and will carry us through whatever happens next. Uh, there's just no question about it. Steve Friend has been my guest. His book is just out. It's called True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop the suspended FBI whistleblower, I'm going to give you the last word, Steve. Anything else you wish you could have said?
0: Uh, I, I mean, I, I just want to follow up on your last comment, there. Um, you know, to me, uh, there's there's just been too many things that uh, align for me. Uh, I don't I don't believe in serendipity. I think that uh, that's all been part of a plan, uh, and I'm and I'm just uh, doing his work. I, I'm always. Kind of uh, chuckle the fact my my birthday is uh, August twenty eighth, so eight twenty eight Romans eight twenty eight is is my uh, my is my verse that I always go by. You're all things booked for the glory of God, and those called according to His purpose. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm just going to continue to do that uh, by speaking out, uh, doing the work that I am doing for Center for Renewing America. I feel uh feel that they're they're on on the side of angels as well. And uh, and I'm just grateful for the opportunity that you gave me to to speak to your audience.
1: Yeah, this is a pleasure. You know, it's it's amazing. In fact, when you said told your story, I just got chills because I think there is something so... uh, It is supernatural what God is doing, and he is at work. Even though we see dreadful things in the headlines, we see all of these incredible moments where he's drawing people and calling people, and they're stepping up to the plate. And there is something thrilling, and I think we're all looking forward to something even though we quite can't quite uh, write out what it is exactly. But uh, but in expectation, we wait. So, uh, Steve, friend, thank you. And again, the book is called True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. Thank you so much, Steve. We appreciate it. And uh, let's stay in touch, please.
0: Thank you very much. God bless you.
1: Thank you. You know, it's amazing to me how God works and has worked through the ages through people. One man, one man at a time sometimes. Are calling people individually and personally, uh, not only to himself, to God, to his side, to his uh, part of his army, I guess I could say, but also to do a job, a specific job. And that's really the story that Steve Friend has laid out for us. And it was really kind of a, a wonderful gift at the end when he talked about his spiritual life. I had no idea. So I consider that a real pearl in the midst of our discussion. Um, I hope you enjoyed it too. Bruce is going to join me in a second and we will talk about it further. I want to remind you that if you have a comment, perhaps you're seeing something that we're not seeing, or you know, something that we, we don't know. You can call us at 662-821-2040. That's 662-821-2040. You know, you can go to sandyrios.com. If you uh, want an easy way to listen to the show, you can do it on your phone or on your computer. Uh, and it'll, it'll link you to the show. Plus, it'll give you some more information uh, about things that you might find interesting. Uh, also, you can send us an email at sandy at AFR.net. That's sandy at AFR.net. This is Sandy Rios 24-7 on American Family Radio. People trusted the FBI
0: more when J. Edgar Hoover was running the place than when you are. And the reason is because you don't give straight answers. You give answers that that later a court deems aren't true, and then at the end of the day, you won't criticize an obvious shakedown when it's directly in front of us, and it appears as though you're whitewashing the conduct of corrupt
2: people. Respectfully, Congressman, in your home state of Florida, the number of people applying to come work for us and devote their lives working for us is over up
0: over a hundred percent. We're deeply proud of them, and they deserve better than you.
1: Well, uh, that was Matt Gaetz giving uh, bringing it to uh, Director Chris Ray. In the hearing recently, I like that moment, but I think the point I want to make here is that there are some really fine people who are serving in the FBI, and there are some that are joining up too, and I think that Matt Gates is right, they deserve better than the leadership of the FBI right now. Bruce, that was really interesting uh, hearing his life, and I know you you have so many stories that parallel. It was probably difficult for you to just listen. You probably wanted to jump. You guys have to get together for you know a Diet Coke or something and <laughs> I, talk about your stories. I would love to get together with Steve. <laughs> uh,
2: I would I, we would spend hours. I'm sure. Um, you know the the one thing t- uh, to remember too is you know we, we've spent a lot of time criticizing the FBI here today, and it's justified. However, we do have to remember that there are a lot of people that are doing a really good job, that are on board with them. And a lot of them have stories like Steve. You know, He went to the University of Notre Dame, he got his accounting degree, he thought his life was gonna go a whole different direction. And there was just something about the FBI that really just sucks you in. Same way with me. I was doing something completely different and I had always wanted to be in the FBI, but I never thought I could make it. And uh, you know, when I was in school, uh, going through training class, we had a, a guy who was a dentist, we had a psychiatrist, we had salespeople. I mean, these are not like from only from a law enforcement and or military background. We had people from all over, and it's something about the organization that drew you. It's like, I want to do good. I want to be part of what is considered the best.
1: Well, um, let me just say that the standards uh, were so high for entry. Uh, you You had to be, at the time you came in, as I understand it, an accountant. Or an, or a, an attorney that was prim, primarily what they were hiring, although you, I know you just said there were others, but for sure, yeah. a lot of technicians now, a lot of uh, computer guys, but you had to have really high credentials. You had to have a clean as a whistle background. Uh, drugs were not should not could not be part of your past or criminal behavior. Even if you had something done something in your youth, it would have been a black mark against you, right?
2: They were very thorough about um, who they let in. I, to be honest, I, I was shocked when I was accepted. Um, I think the uh ratio was like for every ten thousand applicants they took one, and I never understood how I made it, but I was so thankful and
1: I understand how you made it. Bruce always does this, but he loved it so much, and he he didn't uh yeah, but so you're expressing your humility, honey, but I know how you made it you you worked hard
2: well, and it 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 pains me it really pains me to watch what's happening to this organization. And what you just heard Matt Gates say to Christopher Ray is what Christopher Ray should hear on a regular basis from lots of people. He is a con man. He is a company man. He's protecting the Bidens. There's no doubt in my mind he's protecting the Bidens. How much more evidence do we need of it? Uh, you know, the FBI has had this laptop that has now been admitted that it is Hunter Biden's laptop. They've had that since 2019. Think about that. That was before the election oh. between Donald Trump and President Biden. Think about that. It, uh, and they've done nothing with it. Well,
1: they actually we know now because of the Twitter files. They communicated with Twitter and the other and Facebook at least to tell them to to suppress or take off. Uh, any any comments that said that the, the laptop belonged to Hunter Biden. So they actively colluded with social media to stop information right before the election.
2: And you wonder why people like uh, Steve Friend are coming forward. It's outrageous. It is outrageous what's going on at the FBI, and the kind of people that they recruited are finally doing what they need to do, and that's stand up for the Constitution, stand up for what is right don't worry about your career
1: yes well and that's a uh, I kudos to you honey for serving so faithfully and standing up in your own way when you were working there so I'm proud of you for that and I hope that all of you got were inspired. I think heroism inspires heroism a courage begets courage and so let's take this story of Steve to heart wherever you are whatever you're doing let's show courage uh, and bravery and speak the truth no matter the consequences. And God can use that in a mighty way. Well, I hope you enjoyed this edition of Sandy Rios 24-7.